Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. This podcast is sponsored by Curzon. Their new film, Shirley, by Josephine Decker, and starring Elizabeth Moss and Michael Stuhlbarg, is out in cinemas and on Curzon Home from Friday, 30th October. Hello and welcome to this new edition of Truth and Movies. Um, my name is David Jenkins. I'm going to be your host this week uh, in the hot seat via, via video chat and with headphones on in their own humble abodes. We have Little White Lies associate editor Hannah Woodhead and recent Sopranos convert, I might add. The rumours are true. Yes. <laughs> and we, we, we're also joined by film freelancer and all-round great person, Leila Latif. Hi, nice uh, to be here. And I understand a bit of a Shirley Jackson nerd. Uh, yeah, um, since I was a teenager and originally for... Um, quite simplistic reasons that her novels were really short uh and then because she's um you know does some wonderful work outside of just the short story realm um yeah I've been reading her since I was a teenager and then coming back to it now in my mid-30s you sort of see it all through a very different lens so you must have been excited for this film yeah well um excited and a little nervous Ah. because uh you know you can never be sure with biopics can you well, that's that's interesting you say that because the film, I mean, in Hollywood, there is this very, very kind of bankable subgenre known as the biopic. And usually they are good when it comes to films winning awards. They often offer a place for a, an actor to go big on some depiction of a real life historical person or a hero or sometimes even one of history's villains, maybe like less, more, a bit more rare on that occasion. But um, so Shirley by Josephine Decker, which is going to be the uh, focus of this episode of Truth and Movies, um, is uh, adapted from a 2014 book, Shirley, a novel by Susan Scarf Morell. Um, Hannah, is is Shirley the film? Would you describe it as a biopic in the kind of traditional sense of the of the Hollywood biopic word? Well, going by what. Josephine Decker and Elizabeth Moss have said this whole kind of... The first time I spoke to Josephine Decker about this was, gosh, a a very long time ago when she was doing press for Madeline's Madeline and she was talking about she'd just finished filming Shirley or was just starting to film it. And she the first thing she kind of said was, it's not a biopic, it's not a biopic. And um, it was the same with Elizabeth Moss. I think they have been very clear that this is a work of fiction and... It's inspired by Shirley Jackson rather than a direct kind of adaptation of her life. It takes 
some events and there's there's some kind of loose truth to it all but um I think it's a film that's much more interested in the kind of in in Jackson's work herself than um telling a kind of uh, straight story of the facts and figures which is very refreshing in Hollywood you know it's been um exhausting for the past however many years I think you'd have to go back quite far to find a best actor or best actress winner that wasn't or supporting that wasn't part of a biopic I mean last year I can't remember who won last year it feels like a million years ago um Freddie but it Mercury. is like was it that was t- so that was, yeah, it was Jack that, and Phoenix oh, oh there yes. we go it's even worse so <laughs> even worse but as you mentioned villains I mean kind of um the the archetypal biopic I would say of the last however many years is the Iron Lady, which is a very straight, like, you know, Meryl Streep in a in a wig and a, um, prosthetics doing Maggie Thatcher. So I was quite reticent about this just because I, I think biopics tend to be more bad than good. It's quite rare to get a good one. But um, I think because this is so ardently not that <laughs> and and... I'd say great lengths have been gone to to prevent it falling into the kind of genre tropes. It really kind of, it does something interesting and exciting with the idea of telling a real person's life story in a, in a film. One of the things I love about the film is it kind of filters so much of her and her life and the events of her life and where she goes and where she came from through this very small window. And like, again, one of my personal bugbears about the biopic form, especially the ones that are kind of sluiced into that kind of awards bait category, you tend to watch these films and then you can look at their Wikipedia entry afterwards and you could almost like tick off the episodes where all these kind of, it's like Wikipedia has done the work of picking out all the key episodes in this person's life and then we get this episodic trawl through them all. Um, sometimes in the case of something like Bohemian Rhapsody, emphasis has been placed on certain things over the other things. But with this film, you don't really get that at all. Well, there's this element when you have music biopics that in order to get all the rights to the songs, you often have to be super obsequious and make all of the (laughs) people involved just seem like, you know, faultless angels that were taken advantage of by terrible businessmen. (laughs) It's true. Mr. Ashy, and we, we must remember that we're not here to dunk on uh, Bohemian Rhapsody. We're here to rhapsodise about Shirley. <laughs> or, or Rocket Man. I, I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody isn't the only terrible music biopic out there. There's plenty of them. And they're, they're... I, I just remembered it was Judy. Judy won Best Actress, so I was right. It is like an epidemic in Hollywood. If you want to yes. win an Oscar, you play a, a real-life person. Yes. So yes. <laughs> I, I think very consciously... Josephine Decker, Elizabeth Moss, Michael Stolberg aren't setting out to win Oscars with this film. I think it's it's not that kind of movie, which is is great. No one should be doing that. No one should be trying to win an Oscar. But this being a more kind of conventional film for Decker, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, it does feel like they're very they're very aware that this could have been some kind of stodgy. Oh, isn't it hard to be a woman writer film? Which I don't think it is. <laughs> oh, good, good. So, so. Let's go back to you, Layla, for a second, because you you talked about your kind of formative meetings with uh, Shirley Jackson. Could you give us a little bit more about what she's done, who she is, and maybe some favourites, maybe some some examples of things that people might have seen of hers that have been 
adapted for the screen in different ways? Sure. So I guess the kind of biggest hit is The Lottery, which is a short story all about, it's very, very nasty, um, about a little town in which one person has to be drawn from a lottery to be stoned to death. And then probably almost as famous thanks to the TV revival is The Haunting of Hill House, which is a novel about essentially paranormal investigators going to spend time in um, a haunted mansion. But is it just their mental illness? Who knows? Um, And then uh, in terms of things that are referenced in this film, there's um, right at the beginning, Stanley says that he fell in love with her because of this short that she wrote, which was her first short, which is a brilliant story called Janice. And it's literally just a single page all about a woman attempting suicide. And, you know, if you only want to get like, a t- you know, only have time to sample a tiny bit of her work, you know, it'll take you all of 30 seconds to read. And it is kind of deliciously dark. Um, and then, Just to establish, Stanley is her husband? Yes. Yeah. Her husband, who I believe she met because of uh, after she published Janice, he just kind of absolutely adored it and kind of wanted to edit and um, critique her work, a pattern that they would stay in long term Um, and then within this film she's writing hangs a man which is a really great little novel i think it's only like 150 pages but when you kind of hear what it's about i mean it's really quite shocking that that's the book that she wrote because in bennington college which was where this film is set there was a very famous disappearance of a young girl on a hiking trail and like to this day never been solved nobody knows what happened like terribly tragic story and then Shirley wrote this novel which is a fictionalized account of like what may have happened to her and in it like her parents are monsters everybody in the university is driving her to madness and like when you think of like the trauma that those people would have been going through having had this young woman disappear like the fact that Shirley came back at them with this account like oh but you're the true monsters in all of this is um it's a lot (laughs) but you know amazing novel to have written and you know well worth your time and that idea is a sort of bedrock of the film in a in in a way because you have this kind of antagonism between the sort of shut-in Shirley who is kind of locked to her her typewriter working on this opus and she and and she she doesn't really hide her disdain for the kind of chattering middle-class bourgeois educated elite types who are at the college um yeah which is a real theme in all of her books uh we have always lived in a castle which her final novel and um the road through the wall which was her first one it's all that theme coming up of like it's these people trapped within this society which kind of thinks of itself as being so pious and wonderful but actually they're all monsters well lots to take away um and a nice little reading that list there for people and you know as you say lots of lots of short takes for people who maybe don't have uh yeah she wasn't someone who was writing these big doorstop novels like if, if you read the lottery the language is so abrasive and terse that that she 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 you know she she's really not one of these kind of flowery writers. She gets down to the bone like straight away. Um, so Hannah, yeah. let let's talk let's talk a little bit about about Josephine Decker then, who is the who's the director of this film. As you mentioned before, you you've you you 
sort of spoken to her uh, in connection with her previous film just prior to her going out to make Shirley. It feels like quite a leap from something like Madeline's Madeline to Shirley. Do you think it's fair to say that? Yeah, I think even by her own admission, I think Josephine Decker would admit that this is quite a um, a different sort of film. And she's someone that came very much from the arty, experimental indie scene with um, her first film was in 2014, Thou Wast Mild and Lovely, which I always really struggle to pronounce. And um, then she did uh, Butter on the Latch and then Madeline's Madeline and then um, Shirley. So she's actually got like, I, I'd say like quite a, a small body of work and but a very like you know to produce that number of films in um sort of six years is really impressive obviously um but yeah she's you know a bit of an iconoclast she's a performer a artist a um she works a lot in experimental theater and anyone that's seen Madeline's Madeline will attest to kind of how sprawling and diverse her interests are with filmmaking I think she's a very unconventional filmmakers uh, I mean what does that really mean but <laughs> you know she's someone that I think can't really be put into a box as far as her films are concerned and when I first spoke to her about this film she was kind of talking about the differences between working on something like Madeline's Madeline which was a very long I think she said she had about half a year and kind of uh, prep for that because they were working so hard with Helena Howard on developing the character and making it this really personal, really intimate film. Whereas Shirley, which is a studio film, um, she said there were a lot more kind of like things to consider in terms of negotiating with these two quite big stars and then uh, working with a much bigger cast and crew than she normally does. You know, normally her films are about 10 people just seeing what happens, but you can't really do that on a set with, you know, 50 or... 60 people you have to consider marshalling all them to do all their different jobs and it does feel like a very different sort of film and I think a lot of people when this first premiered at Sundance I think a lot of people were quite um uh some I I, I don't think critical is the right word but I think people were surprised because it does feel like a more conventional film for Josephine Decker to have made mm -hmm. but that doesn't necessarily mean it's a conventional film by kind of normal standards at all I think it's just a kind of new challenge for her to hone those very wild kind of instincts that she has into something that I think is more conventional to like a, a, a mainstream audience I guess I don't think this is her trying to sell out or anything but I think it is like her making something more polished and refined maybe than her past work has been. It's kind of an interesting example of this sort of weird quite modern paradigm in Hollywood at the moment of you have kind of slightly young more kind of indie inclined directors who make personal films, they kind of carve out a little niche for themselves, they make a name for themselves, and then they're kind of like co-opted by the machine to, to, <laughs> to sort of, you know, spread that imprint out a little bit and give this kind of big corporate entity a bit of personal feeling. And on a kind of weird micro scale, I guess you could see this as an example of that. Although it is and it isn't in that this film still feels like this is probably the film that she wanted to make. And in terms of the, the actual production on it, the, the way that the actors act and the, the way the story's told, 
it still doesn't feel like your kind of flat pack Hollywood biopic as we have established, <laughs> not just in the plot and the structure, but actually in the sort of the music and the editing and the and how this kind of little story is told, focusing on these really quite, you know, I, I, I don't think ho- horrific is the right word, but really tense standoffs between the various characters. I guess, Layla, it'd be good to actually set up the drama in the film. Um, could you mm. maybe explain, there are kind of four main protagonists in the film, and could you maybe talk a little bit about how they come together and how they connect and where the drama in the film comes from? Uh, sure. So um, you have, at this point, Shirley and her husband Stanley are living at Bennington College, where he is lecturing, and uh, Shirley has become quite um, agoraphobic and um, has got a bit of writer's block. Um, and then Stanley's new assistant with his um, newlywed wife, Rose, who's in the early stages of pregnancy, uh, come to stay with them for a few, initially for a few days, but then because they need more help around the house, kind of settle in on a more permanent basis. And the kind of core of this film is the evolving relationship then between Rose and Shirley, who kind of start out as like wildly different characters and then slowly as the film goes on, become kind of closer and closer together. And um, sort of the lines between them kind of blur and the roles between them blur and the power dynamic becomes very complex. And I think that kind of really speaks, is very true to Shirley Jackson because in a lot of her books, though it was all really about core female relationships. So as a you know, unconventional biopic about her, it seems like very appropriate that that's where the film's focus is. Do you think that there is a a specific focus on the women in the film? And do you think that the focus skews towards the female characters in terms of our sympathy? Maybe Hannah? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, the film is called Shirley, so we would hope that she is uh, very much the uh, the beating heart of this. And I think um, it's nice to see a biopic that, while while you know Stanley is a big presence in the film, um, it's not a kind of behind every successful woman. There's a there's a man who's there too. Um, I'm thinking of kind of like um, the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg film, which came out um, last year, mm. which was very much like, look how great her husband was too. Which is just you know, I, I, sure, yeah, but. You know, I'm, I'm not that interested. I didn't come to see that movie. But the refreshing thing about Shirley is it's very much about the relationship between these two women and kind of how they descend, I guess, into this sort of uh, folie d'oeuvre, which is just all-consuming. I mean, when they first meet, Shirley is very antagonistic towards Rose. She's very kind of testing, shall we say, Um but the relationship goes through so many kind of transformations within the film. You know, you're not sure if they love each other, if they just are very attracted to each other, or if there's kind of a mother-daughter thing going on. Um, and it really keeps you on your toes. I, I feel like it's so rare to kind of see such a complex relationship between two women in a biopic that isn't kind of like explicitly a film like Ammonite which is about you know a a lesbian romance this is very is very ambiguous about everything and there's so many different ways you could take everything that happens in this film you could you know I think even the film itself is um not quite sure (laughs) what the dynamic is but there's something like 
I, I mean, I've seen this film three or four times now, and every time I watch it, I come away with something new. I think it's kind of masterful in Sarah Gubbin's script to make it so, like, disarming and beguiling at the same time. You just, you feel as kind of wrong-footed by it all as um, Rose does, who is really, like, our avatar going into it. She's this very, she goes in so naive and such a starry-eyed uh, little housewife who's very enamoured of Shirley, and it's uh, it, it's a great film about meeting <laughs> meeting your heroes and realizing they uh, aren't suck. all <laughs> realizing <laughs> realizing they suck, but also mm. kind of learning how to go toe to toe with them. I guess I think that one of the great things about Rose is that she slowly becomes this very sparky young woman who is kind of not as um, naive about the world around her. She becomes very you know, through through Shirley's help, I would say she becomes this um, sort of worldly creature who understands the wicked ways of the world. And there's this wonderful line in it where um, I don't I don't know if this is a, a spoiler or not, but um, Rose becomes. We can edit this out if it is. <laughs> Rose gets pregnant, and she's discussing this with Shirley. And Shirley says, "Oh, let's pray for a boy. The world is too cruel for." girls and I was like oh that's it isn't it you know this whole film is about um the kind of the 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 misery (laughs) of being a um being a woman and especially being a a creative woman I think the time it's set um is so important to the film and so kind of frustrating watching it you're kind of like you see this amazingly talented writer and obviously watching it now as a contemporary audience we know how brilliant Shirley Jackson was and how productive she was incredibly productive (laughs) but it's you know you're watching the film and she's constantly kind of having to deal with kind of not only Stanley being Stanley which I'm sure we'll get onto in a moment um but the kind of the world around her which didn't I don't think it was ready for a person like Shirley Jackson who was kind of she refused to be any one thing she refused to be this little housewife who just wrote some nice stories she refused to be polite or convenient she very much wanted to have everything on her terms which was extremely radical for a woman back back then quality sleep is essential that's why the sleep number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I mean, Stanley is, a, is as you say, a, a fascinating part of the film, played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who is, I mean, in a perfect world, I, I don't know if Shirley has missed the awards run for this year, but um, it, it kind of feels that it would be a slight tragedy if he was overlooked, or, or and both Elizabeth Moss and him, they're both incredible in this film. But I mean, his character in this film is... Yeah, as you say, like, it's hard to think of a character who you, you hate in one scene and love in the next scene. He he, he, mm. he is this kind of chameleon. He's this awful gaslighter. And then he's then he's suddenly this kind of charming, debonair, literate husband. Layla, what was your take on Stanley and how Michael Stuhlbarg brought him to life? Yeah, I thought it was really fascinating because they introduce him in such a in such a charming way where he's kind of holding court at this party and he's you know complimenting her in this like truly like charming and self-deprecating way and you kind of feel glad for Shirley that she has someone like this in her life but then slowly over the film he kind of reveals himself to be almost like a parasitic conjoined twin (laughs) that can only thrive when other people are suffering so um And that's kind of done with quite a lot of subtlety, given like how monstrous he is at times. And even it's it's far more enjoyable when obviously he's taking down someone that you care about less than Shirley. But he's got that thing that many people have that where they can use wit to actually cover up how cruel they are. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, you know, a wonderful performance. They've got almost a kind of Munchausen by proxy dynamic going on part of it where he's really buying into her mental illness so he can get a lot of credit from other people too for how kind of kind and generous he is taking care of this poor sick woman. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a brave portrayal and not one that you would get in uh, in a lot of biopics. Yeah, you, you kind of feel that it takes an actor with the nous and the intelligence of, 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 of a Michael Stuhlbarg to actually pull off someone like Stanley and actually not make him into this kind of two-dimensional monster, which I think could so easily have, have happened under, under lesser hands. I guess one of the other interesting elements of the film which sort of sits at its centre, is also a kind of depiction of the artistic process. And I'd, I'd love to hear from you both about how you feel that squares with your own experiences or um, if you feel that there's any, is there, is there kind of credibility in this idea of, of, of Shirley being kind of dr- driven? To, I guess it's this idea of, it's not so much procrastination in that she's kind of, she is sort of repelled by most things in the world and and she she does want to kind of be focused on this one thing but there is just there is something that you can't quite get your head around that is sort of preventing her from from doing this work but yeah maybe Hannah if you could if you could kick off on this one yeah as someone who is in the middle of writing a book at the moment um i uh, felt very seen by shelley <laughs> um <laughs> Uh, particularly on a, on a rewatch, I think it's, you know, one of the greatest depictions of not only being a female writer, but being a writer in general. I think it really nails the kind of 
the tedium of it more than anything. And there's a wonderful moment when Stanley asks uh, how the book is going or how the how the writing is going. And Shirley just turns and like looks at him very straight and says, uh, never ask me about that again or sort of words to that effect. She, it's it's the most like the the most wonderful shutdown, which I think every kind of writer relates to so much because as soon as someone asks you how your writing is going, you're like, absolutely not. We are never speaking about this ever again. It's it's uh, it's a very honest film, I think, about the kind of pitfalls of being a writer without it being kind of sentimental and and maudlin. I think it's just very. Um, very sort of observant and wry about the act of being um, creative. And it kind of is mysterious about the uh, the process, but also just kind of very blunt about how it does turn you, it can, it can turn you into a bit of a single-minded monster at times, um, which I'm sure a, a lot of um, writers will relate to. I mean, the, the, the book it, or the story, I should say, it reminds me a lot of is um, The Yellow Wallpaper by uh, Charlotte Perkins Gilman, which is a, another kind of classic of the genre. Um, and I'm sure it must have inspired Sarah Gubbins when she was working on the script. But it's a similar story about a woman who has uh, a mental illness and she is kind of, I was going to say ensconced, but that's not the right word. She is locked away, shall we say, by her husband <laughs> in a room and told to kind of recover from her mysterious illness she has and she's forbidden from writing or um, working at all. The stories about her kind of processing her illness through writing and anyway I won't spoil it it's, it's a wonderful story people should go and read it but yeah I think that this is another kind of brilliant depiction of how um, creativity can be fueled by mental illness but also hindered by it. I think you know some of the most relatable things within the film for me are the kind of uh, Shirley just lying in bed and refusing to get out. <laughs> I think it's very, uh, as someone who has, has suffered a lot with mental illness in the past, I think it's it's a very honest film about how debilitating these things can be as well as a wonderful source of inspiration, which I think was certainly the case with Shirley Jackson. What about you, Layla? What was your thoughts on this on this subject? than a dissertation so I can't really speak to uh, creating a book but um, I did really enjoy like how um, it showed like this other side of Shirley Jackson when she was on a roll with her writing and when kind of she wasn't feeling humiliated and she sort of comes alive when she gets to do the two things that she's best at which is writing unspeakably nasty stories and being really cruel to hypocrites. <laughs> I mean, you, you do get a lot of sense of that in the film. And like, I think that it, it is interesting how I'm trying to think of examples, but there there are occasions where you get like, uh, I'm thinking of a film like that Tim Burton film, Big Eyes, which was <laughs> which which I think is a, not a good example of a kind of artist biopic. It kind of plays on the sort of irony of the fact that you have this kind of sweet, gentle woman making these kind of quite eerie, weird images and you kind mm. of you have to sort of question where they come from and I think that one of the things that Shirley does really well is like you really think yes this woman would write those stories even though it never puts too fine a point on the fact that what what a kind of iconoclastic thing it would be to be a female horror writer in in sort of mid-century is quite a thing in and of itself 
but it doesn't play too much on that distinction, I guess. So one of the things we haven't really talked about, and I was kind of saving for the end, is Elizabeth Moss, who is in the lead role. I mean, we, we, it sounds like we're kind of going through the cast list here, but <laughs> I almost think we could do an entire podcast series on Elizabeth Moss and her kind of quite extraordinary film career and the route it's taken. I mean, she's become known for these really quite all-in, quite manic performances that she gives. Yeah. She, I mean, she she was kind of introduced through her character Peggy on Mad Men, and she she's sort of done that rare thing of being able to kind of break out of TV infamy and actually have this kind of really quite interesting and valuable career. Not, I wouldn't necessarily say that all the films she's been in have been like huge box office successes I, I wouldn't say she's like a big box office draw but she is a kind of she's definitely a reason on her own to go and see it. if she, you know if she's if she's got a starring role in a movie that, that's a reason to see her Hannah can I ask you first do you see any precedent for this performance prior to Shirley um, is there anything that maybe hinted at the Elizabeth Moss we see in this film I think she's someone that's always kind of been interested in roles that are maybe um a little I I I I want to say unconventional but you know I think um interesting I guess is is maybe the better word she always plays um female characters who are kind of they got a little something about them they got a little pizzazz going on like you say she broke through in Mad Men but then um the thing the TV series that I think she really shone in was Top of the Lake, which was Jane Campion's um, New Zealand kind of crime thriller, I guess, um, in which she played a a detective who returns to her hometown to to investigate a murder and kind of very similar to Shirley in some ways, a kind of whole web of lies and intrigue and corruption um, unveils. Again, I'd very much recommend people watch that for some top tier directing and performances. I think it's a a wonderful series. But yeah, she's always kind of taken the road less travelled, I think, with her career. And you say she's not someone that we would consider like a big box office draw, but I think she's always looked for kind of the interesting film, you know, the the choice that um, is going to challenge her in some way. I'm thinking about, you know, she was so great in um, Her Smell, which I think is... Maybe my favourite thing she's done. She's done so much that I love, it's kind of hard to tell. But um, in her smile, she plays this kind of, again, a difficult creative, shall we say, um, but someone that's so, so separate from Shirley. And I think to be able to kind of have so many sides to her and with every film, she kind of seems to be doing something else. I mean, you think about this year alone, she's done Shirley and uh, The French Dispatch, which obviously none of us have seen yet. Um, but also The Invisible Man, which did do very well at the box office and kind of like had a lot of people saying, oh, she's a new scream queen. We know she should be in loads of horror films. So, yeah, I think she really is someone that kind of I am always so excited to see what she's doing. I always think I, I, for me, she's a box office draw. I will turn up if if Elizabeth Moss hmm. is uh, in a in a film. I'm, I'm, I will buy a ticket and go. I think she uh, really always kind of. Even in smaller roles, like in Us, she plays a sub- kind of supporting role, but she still is like does so much with her kind of limited screen time. Do you think that Elizabeth Moss has the, the sort of screen queen abilities? I mean, she's been in this big 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I maybe re- have to retract what I said before because obviously The Invisible Man has been a sizable box office hit. I think it mm. came out just before COVID. So it was probably the last significant big release, I think. But, last um, thing I saw at the cinema. Well, there you go. So, um, <laughs> do you think that that's this is a that the, the Screen Queen would be a good route for Elizabeth Moss? I I think she has signed on to another Blumhouse film as well. I believe a sequel to The Invisible Man, or just a. I I'm not sure. Yeah, there is a sequel coming. Ah, there you go. There we go. Interesting. I. Okay, well, I can't see how that could possibly work, but we mean in Elizabeth Moss's capable hands, I'm sure they'll come up with something. Um, I mean, yeah, Elizabeth Moss is undeniably phenomenal and, you know, she just seems to choose things that, like, challenge and um, surprise all the time. Like, from what I know about her, um, I read a very long article a few years ago about her work on the first season of Handmaid's Tale. She's someone that does a huge amount of research like on that show, she'll memorize all of because it has a lot of narration. Um, she'll memorize every word that she's narrating to act alongside it in silence, which you know most people wouldn't bother to do. Um, I think, but unfortunately, I think what needs to happen is she needs to untether herself from that television show because it really has um, died a death and is probably <laughs> preventing us from seeing some more wonderful work of hers. Oh, really? Is there going to be further Handmaid's Tale? So yes, unfortunately. <laughs> ah, right. I, I didn't realise that it had gone off a cliff edge. Well, the first series is excellent because it is following the actual Margaret Atwood book. And then from then on, series two and three, they kind of had to make up their own story. And I'm, I'm convinced that Margaret Atwood has since released a sequel, The Testaments, to A Handmaid's Tale. And I'm convinced it's because she watched season two of Handmaid's Tale and thought, absolutely not, because it really is dire. (laughs) (laughs) I was convinced to watch that because it had... um... I've completely forgotten her name, but the but the girl from the Gilmore Girls is in it. Alexis Bledel. Oh, Alexis yeah. Ba- she's Bledel, good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Rory. Rory from Gilmore Girls. I love that that's what convinced you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, it, it's always good to see someone who you liked and who maybe... It's that weird thing of like, oh, you're watching a show and you think, oh, this is really good. You look on IMDb and you think... Mm, didn't really happen for them. They've been in a few like direct-to-video films since then and some TV series that didn't get past one series and then suddenly, oh, they're in The Handmaid's Tale. Maybe think, maybe it's all going to be all right. I think not to um, make this the Alexis Bledel podcast, but um, I think her problem was she looked too much like Zero Deschanel and the, the world just wasn't ready for that. Um, we could only kind of handle one big-eyed, dark-haired, kooky girl at a time. They, yeah, they, I don't they... know. If I'm going to go with one, I'll go with Alexis Bledel over <laughs> Zoe Deschanel any day. Alexis Bledel has reins. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, she, I think she got an award for Handmaid's Tale, didn't she? Well deserved. Anyway, for Series 1. For Series 1. <laughs> yes, anyway, this is this has gone on, off on a bit of a tangent, but yes. Sorry. Um, I'm with you on the Elizabeth Moss love. I think that all her collaborations with Alex Ross Perry, including Her Smell, Listen Up Philip, have been really interesting. And the one she did with Catherine Waterson as well, Queen of Earth, very like Bergman-y. She does remind me of one of your kind of Bergman leading ladies um, Mm. in that she's kind of really kind of... You feel that when you're watching Elizabeth Moss, she's in a kind of trance. She's just in the character, 
she's fully inhabiting that person and that on that film set you wouldn't want to really go near her you know like (laughs) yeah but but yeah she goes quite big doesn't she she goes Mm. like for quite kind of large performances but she manages to still ground it in something that where you don't feel you're watching a caricature like the amount of like teeth bearing in this film that would just look ridiculous on most actors but you know it's just amazing when she does it i almost think and correct me if i'm wrong here that like there's maybe been a history in hollywood where it's mainly men who are allowed to do those kind of performances that are the kind of big showy researched you know like really big performances and it really feels like refreshing that she's the one who is now doing that i'm massively generalizing i'm sure that there are probably a thousand examples to the counter but am i barking up the wrong tree there do you think I think that, um, absolutely. I mean, particularly the kind of difficult genius trope is, uh, when I when I spoke to Elizabeth Moss about this film, I said, you know, it does feel like men have been given so much license to be a bastard who is very good at what they do for a very long time. And we've seen that time and time again in um, not only like, in kind of like history, but also in pop culture. You think about a show like House, which is basically about this asshole who like, is the centre of the universe and everyone that has to just mould themselves to his presence because of how wonderful and talented he is. I think there's much less room given in the world for women to be like that because women have to be, and a particular woman who would have existed in Shirley Jackson's time, women have to be ladies and they have to be nice and polite and they uh, have to kind of toe the line, which I think Shirley Jackson was never really interested in doing. And thinking about another film, which I want to say came out this year, but it kind of did and it didn't um promising you a woman which was another of our esteemed cover films it's a similar kind of thing i think that we're getting so much better as an industry as as the film industry at showing women who are flawed and kind of flawed in interesting ways you know i i guess it's the fleabag effect you know not that phoebe Waller-Bridge started this by any means but i think audiences are becoming a lot more comfortable with the idea of showing a woman who has flaws and desires and is a well-rounded human being and not some kind of mystical superwoman who has it all. I think that one of Shelley's great strengths is it's very upfront about the struggles that come along with trying to navigate your kind of personal desires and aspirations with kind of the power structures and the confines of the quote-unquote real world and um, society. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's kind of one of uh, the cliches that whenever you have a female character that um, people become very concerned about how likeable they are. <laughs> and this film doesn't really seem to care one way whether or not you like her. An interesting choice that it made is in the novel and in real life, Shirley Jackson had four children. And you could just kind of see a lesser version of this film where it's just like, well, we'll have her being so rude at the cocktail party. But look, afterwards, isn't she being so nurturing and warm with this kind of rather sweet toddler? And they just didn't go there at all. Like they had faith in um, just, you know, we're telling a story about a fascinating woman. um, And we don't need to kind of soften that to make her appeal to people. I think looping back to what we were saying at the beginning about the... uh, restrictions of this very kind of form that has become ultra conventional in the biopic which is just you know these films which are essentially kind of feature length montages <laughs> this film just makes so many interesting choices about not just what to include but about what not to include and i just yeah 
seeing her life depicted through this very in this very sort of small window it just makes it so much more interesting and exciting and informative and educational as well I mean I think you just get so much more out of it even if you're not getting quote unquote the facts um <laughs> you know you're, you're getting the feelings which are so much more important I think in film anyway I think on that note, we're going to wrap up. Unless anyone would like, has any other business they would like to attend to or bring up about Shirley or anything else in the world? I, I oh. just would say watch Top of the Lake. Oh, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> a bit, bit of deep research there as to watch Top of the Lake. Anything you would suggest? Yes, for don't, watch, uh, the, don't watch the season three of Howling's <laughs> Tale. <laughs> and Layla, what would you say would be a good, um, if, if, someone, if you were saying one Shirley Jackson story that people should pick up if they are excited by Shirley or love Shirley and want to do a bit of further research? Um, I would definitely say go with uh, We Have Always Lived in a Castle because there's so many amazing parallels with this film. Um, Not to give too much away, but um, where We Have Always Lived in a Castle is about two sisters who are, you know, one of them is kind of quite monstrous and acerbic and the other one is much more kind of palatable to the outside world. But there are dark secrets and there are murders and there are terrible townsfolk. Um, and I, I, it was her final work and I think I, her finest work. So I really would suggest that. And like all Charlie Jackson books, they're only about 200 pages. So you can kind of get it done in a weekend. <laughs> nice. Well, thanks, Layla. Thanks, Hannah, for your time. That's some top insights in this film. Uh, certainly made me want to give it another sweep. This has been Truth and Movies and we'll speak to you soon. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 